So welcome back to How AI Built This, uh, the podcast dedicated to data storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts. So thank you to them. So I am joined today by uh, probably the nicest man in data, Eric Arna Madison Dreyfus, for his second appearance on the show. So if you want to go check out episode three uh, to learn a bit more about Eric's background, this one will be a little bit different. Um, rather than going through his career. Uh, so welcome back, Eric. Thank you. So what people don't know is the first time we recorded, the entire recording went wrong, and uh, we had to have a fallback video, which um, James thankfully managed to save. Uh, so we have we have that episode, like I said, episode three, um, if you want to go through um, Eric's career, um, which is very interesting. Um, but th- since we last spoke, um, kind of, way back when you just started with a test um, but now have a slightly different role where uh, you're director of data science and analytics right uh, yes yes so it's uh, a bit more of a, a bigger remit I guess I'm also uh, we've set up a BI team as well as um, MLOps core team that uh, I also lead now as well as the standard data science team that we had before um, so we might get into some of those nuances in a sec. I suppose it might be worth for anyone listening who don't know what you guys do. Um, what is kind of like the core business function of a test? And I noticed that you were on a, a list yesterday of um, other kind of scale-ups doing very well. And then I suppose on top of that, where kind of data comes into to it as well? Essentially a market research platform or an insights platform. So we allow customers and clients to run surveys um, against an audience, um, they get the respondents back, and they can analyze it on our platform. Think, but don't think like competitive to, but think something like the Survey Monkey, but more specialized, more advanced in many ways. Um, it's sort of for the marketeer, for the insights person that want to run specifically. Typically, our surveys are around brand performance, brand recognition, testing your ads, testing your at visual or your app text, uh, what you call creative, um, and seeing what has the best responses in a certain demographic in a particular country. So we handle that. So we, our platform will be creating the survey, you'll be setting everything up, what you want to test, and then we will be running it across um, a large audience that we manage, and then you get the responses back and you analyze it on platform. Basically, that's, that's what we do. Nice. So like a better version of SurveyMonkey. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't say it because we don't want to compare directly because it's a very different thing, but uh, it's different target audience, etc. But yeah, I think that's that's the easiest way to explain to someone who doesn't really know the the market or the, the market the market research industry. Yeah, oh, because market research is like it is massive business, right? Like the people spend a lot of money trying to get things, the, the, essentially like marginal gains, right? Like it's not often, like they're not aiming for some huge kind of industry redefining thing. It's like it's marginal gains where they can get them, which is obviously why you guys will do quite well analyzing how they perform, right? Uh, yes, I mean, it's, it's enormous. If you think about time or like the, the money spent in that, uh, industries in, is in all the countries of billions. Right? So it's, it's a big market to, to attack. Of course, there's a lot of incumbents in there. You've probably heard about a lot of them, like Nielsen, or Gallo, or like Canta. There's 
all the different consultancies are in there as well. McKinsey, etc. But we think we can do something different, um, faster, easier to use, cheaper overall, all these things. Um, yeah. Like the classic startup scale up setup, right? You want to disrupt something. Yeah, that's kind of our angle to it. Nice. And the, is part of the kind of differentiation of, of a test the fact that you've got that data capability in house? Like, is that is that quite rare, or or is that just one of the extras of having you guys, like you you and the team, can do things that others can't? Typically, we, it's ease of use and speed that we sort of differentiate ourselves on. We can, we can get your results back very quickly. Um, depends on where you do, but in certain markets, certain demographics, right, you, you have to wait an hour, not even, to get your results back. And we have a large enough audience, uh, what do you call audience, people on the other side who are willing to give us answers. Um, and if, if, if you're not sort of, if it's not a very niche thing, you can easily get uh, things filled in an hour, two hours. Right? So if you want to understand your, want to test this ad or you want to, against your old ad to see which one um, has the best effect, then you can do that very quickly. Well, that's often what we, what we sell ourselves on. We have on top of that a lot of behind the scenes data science, building more and more in the you know, analytic sense of what you actually results, how can you actually find the insights. Um, that is going to differentiate us even more from some of the existing players there. But yeah, that's, again, it's kind of the classic ease, speed, it's some extra capabilities. That's how you can compete against the incumbents, right? Yeah, especially if they've been around forever, where the, the yeah. kind of speed part is normally what kind of kind of pulls them back a little bit. Um, so, like I said at the start, this isn't going to be the kind of walkthrough one. This is a bit more of a jump into random data topics and see where it takes us. Um, and I jokingly said before the show as well, we might we might mention the European Super League because why not? Everyone else is talking about it this week. We'll, we'll kick off, actually. We had a couple of questions uh, on Twitter because I decided to see if there was anything people wanted to talk about. And luckily, there was. Uh, so um, Joe Allen, who uh, organizes Pi Data Manchester, actually, um, he asked about MLOps, which is pretty timely, given that you mentioned it earlier. Um, and also, people are speaking about it loads certainly kind of on uh like social media and a few other people i've been speaking to as well so what you said was uh mlop seems to be seen as the next challenge for data teams who do you think is responsible for for good mlops um is it the data team a kind of machine learning team or a software team and he has another part after that but i'll we'll maybe go to that first yeah okay very topical thing to talk about right mlops it's very hard at the moment um been talking to a lot of a lot of different pitches recently um, from startups, companies that want to get into that space. Um, again, because that is kind of where there's a focus. A lot of VCs are putting money into that space, um, trying to come up with a trying to find the winner that's probably going to win, or a few winners are going to win in that space because there isn't really a maybe um, a bit past the question here, but there isn't really any sort of consensus yes for the solutions, right? The solutions are being formed. So there will be some platforms, there'll be some solutions, there'll be some processes that will become the standard. But obviously, in a VC perspective, you want to be the one that backs that. Um, it feels to me very much like DevOps 10, 15 years ago, data engineering five years ago, right? Where everyone was talking about 
we need a data engineer. We need a, you know this, right? You you were in there when the, everyone needed data a data pipeline. We need to be a data warehouse, right? And that is where we are now with MLOps, right? Everyone sort of DevOps got, okay, I'm going to use quotation marks, they're solved, as in those processes that's uh, stabilized, people understood what was, needs to be done. Data engineering the same, you build your data warehouse, you build your data lake, we know the tools that you might use, people have done it before. Um, and now we're in the MLOps space, like the next thing up, um, and we're trying to solve that. Right? So uh, that's why it's hot at the moment. Um, the, most kind of, the other things have been solved. And now we're trying to solve this space. Yeah. So, what was the question? What do you actually need in your, in your team? I think. No. So, I think he said, "Who who do you think would be responsible for it?" So, when it comes to the makeup of a team, like, is it a specific data team that's responsible for it? Do you have a machine learning team that is responsible for all of their own ops, or do you have like a software team in the background? And maybe I think we'll come on to this uh, further down the line, but kind of different job titles and stuff. But like, should that, as a director of data science and analytics, would you like to have an MLOps team or would that fall under some of the people you already have? Oh, I, don't, I think you should. And I, we have. Um, so the way we've structured is we have a, there are three teams in, in data science. Um, well, we have what we just called a data science team. It's essentially the product data science team. Which I think is, we should talk about that, but that's, there's often a misconception between data science product and data science BI, right? And we split that. We have two teams with BI, what we just call data science, but I'll call that product. Product would be like building recommendation into right? this client facing. You're building something that's going to go into the product that's going to be client facing, right? Um, which is a different way of working. Um, and then we have the BI team, which is working on analytics. For the internal use, right? So that's going to be something for our company. Um, so you're not building a product. You're building, you just think a bit differently in that, that way. And you want different um, skill set there as well. And then in the middle, we have what we call the core team. It's a terrible word, like terrible name, core team. Term. I don't know what else I want to call it. It's, just, it's a core. It's a core of what we do. And that is essentially the data engineering and MLOP together. Ideally, I think if you grew bigger, we would split the two out. Because I think there's different skill sets for data engineering and MLOps is different. So what these they do is they, they there's three people on this team for us and they manage all of the infrastructure around data science, be it BI or product. Uh, that would mean the data warehouse, data lake, all our ETL data pipelining, and then all the modeling side. So what what is MLOps? For me, it's anything to do with models, right? Model the model is the artifact. The data, you know, the data is the artifact you're working on. So that would be model training, model versioning, model deployment, be it in a real time, like to say, the recommendation engine needs to run in real time against all the requests from your users. Who manages that infrastructure? That's MLOps. Who manages the training? Who who manage who um, monitors that model in terms of is it performing as it should be? Um, all those things, that's what I call MLOps. Um, reproducibility is, is a big thing, again, in MLOps. So if you've trained a model, can you retrain it? Exactly the same. Can you reproduce? So if that model misbehaves, especially now that we may have models that have impact on people's lives, like it's a credit scoring model, right? A lot of companies, there's a lot of fintech in London, all of them will have some sort of credit scoring model. Basically, 
are they going to give you credit or not? Going to give you a credit card or not, right? This is a pretty important for people's lives. That's a pretty important model for you as a data scientist. It's a job, but for them, it's a very important thing, right? And being able to track how was that model trained, what was the input data exactly, what was the input parameters, so we could always run that back. I think it's something we often forget the data science. We often have these models that are running. Someone trained it sometime on his local machine somewhere or whatever, or some AWS instance. No one really understands, like once it's trained, no one really can necessarily reproduce exactly that model again, which means that if it's doing things, you will have a hard time understanding what went wrong. You should always be able to. Um, yeah, there's a lot to say, but I think especially when we're dealing with something that influences people, I think we should start thinking a lot about it as more like we need to have that paper trail, um, like you would in many other parts of the world where there's a decision that influences someone. Like, I think in, in, in medicine, right, you can always ask for your journal and understand what was the what was the process that led to that decision. And I think we should think often now more about that as well in our world. <laughs> yeah. People should be able to be explained this is why. And if they take you to court, you should be able to explain why would that happened. Like why did that happen? Yeah, no, that um, makes sense. Um anyway, that was a law thing. That's where I think ML ops lives. Like that's anything around the model, that's what it is. No, that's it makes sense because we were speaking to a customer the other day and I think they're probably a little bit earlier on in their kind of ML ops journey than than you guys potentially. But one of the things they were quite keen on is in this kind of, they call it like a machine learning engineer, having people that are responsible for looking at like code that's shareable on new, either new models or new projects. So they don't just always go and do it off by themselves. Like there's a kind of like, there's a code base essentially, kind of like software, it's like, kind of like mixing software engineering and DevOps, right? Like that's the whole point yeah. of MLOps. Um, and it's having some of those more like core principles rather than, because I think, I mean, it's definitely not as bad as it was kind of recently, but data science almost felt like a kind of separate thing when it should really all be kind of knitted together in some way, which I think is the point of MLOps, right? Yeah, and introducing those software engineering um, sort of patterns or processes that we've had for 20 or like, for a long time and like versioning of your code. Yeah. Again, Maybe that was controversial in the 90s. No one now questions whether you should have a of But we don't have that by default in the data science team. No, like it comes later in data science, or people at some point are like, oh, maybe we should have some sort of repository where we version and we can reproduce and we can track back all our models. We have the lineage of how the models evolve. That is, in many companies, doesn't exist. And in the companies where they exist, it's quite mature companies. Yeah. Like if you go to one of the, to a bigger company and try to think of something out here that's made it past, that's made it like months or very large. I don't even know if they do. They probably do it, but all of these like Revolut or something. Amazon probably have a decent code base for their data scientists, you would hope. A hundred percent. And, you know, Facebook, Google or whatever up the road, of course, right? Um, but there's like this stage where these companies will start introducing it. Um, but versioning of your code from software engineering, you do on day one in a startup, right? Uh, you don't even think about it. I mean, you're not there yet in data science. You don't. You just hack around, and then at some point, 
you start saying, oh, well, we have like, we're seeing problems because we don't understand what this model is, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we should do something. And so one of the things that Joe mentioned, and it was kind of last part of his question, and we've, we've answered this a little bit, but he said many data teams don't have budget for adding like software engineers, for example. So is is this just another skill that data scientists are expected to do? Well, he said it's another hat that data scientists are expected to wear. We're actually going to, I'll jump into the next part of it because it actually goes on quite well. But um, this is where I think the the separation of like MLOps, data engineer, data scientist, it's potentially that we're trying to fit too much into the data scientist title. Do you think that's true? Yes. I think so about the, the hat. I think that's also a consequence or what you say, effect of where we are in this MLOps journey. Like, Back in the days, that's when DevOps was early on, right? the software engineers were also meant to run the system. That's why DevOps was invented. Right? You have the programmers, the engineers, essentially, also running the the, um, the live production infrastructure, right? And they were spending a lot of time debugging that, or they were finding that out, or word locking, or blah, blah, blah. They didn't really know what they were doing. So we invented DevOps, right? I think we, we will eventually get there. Like it will become a thing. It's just so early. But now we expect data scientists to do it. But I think over time it will become a thing and there'll be budget for it as well. Yeah. But right now we're in that place where it needs doing. But it isn't like a need that people think about from day one like they would for DevOps. So they, um, that you have to convince the organization to give you the headcount, et cetera. And therefore it has to be done by data scientists until. Also, I think tooling will get better anyway. So, as the tooling stabilizes, and the few, then people will like in the beginning, people were running their own version control servers or software. Now we use GitHub, like it's managed. It's an easy solution. It will be become the same thing, which so that means there'll be less reinventing the wheel every time in DevOps. And at the same time, it will become a discipline that people will understand. We need like, we build a team. We need one data scientist, one MLOps one data engineer instead of now where it's like, there's like 10 data designers and okay, maybe we should get an MLOps for us or something like this. I think that the, the scale will, be, will go, go the other way a bit. Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned kind of tooling as well because it's a conversation we've had with a few people recently, but yeah, you're right. The, the tools aren't really there yet, are they? So like, well, I mean, there is some and some are doing really well. But yes, yeah, it's, it's not the same as software and, and DevOps and, and infrastructure where, yes, there's new stuff kind of propping up all the time, but you can, any team could make a go of like DevOps best practice if they had someone to tell them how to do it because the tools are, there's a decent set of tools available. And and the processes are there. Like, it's not just the tools, it's also what people understand how it should fit together. They may replace this tool with another tool along the way, but you have a process that you roughly understand this how this is how we run it, right? This like is established in the industry. How yeah. things should run. We don't have that yet, which is why people are putting these two together in <laughs> whichever yeah. way, trying to understand what's at some point would there will emerge some patterns where people say this is how you do it and then it become easier to do things. Like and everyone that. yeah, everyone kinda yeah. follow suit and there'll almost be like a standard with obviously same as software engineering, there'll be a standard, but there'll be people doing it better than others and better tools available, but there'll be something there. And one of the things, so we mentioned kind of there's a job needing doing and, and often it will fall to data scientists. I mean, 
you mentioned kind of MLOps, data engineer, data scientist. Some of the stuff we've been seeing is like machine learning engineer, AI engineer, MLOps engineer, obviously data engineer, data scientist. Does that, do you think we're potentially getting to the point where it could get too complicated or do you think, is it good to have, so, you, so you're the director of data science and analytics, right? So you could have like NL, two or three NLP data scientists and their absolute expertise is NLP. You don't ask yeah. them to get involved in yeah. the productionization of anything. Then you've got data engineers who are doing, like you said, all the ETL pipelines and maybe the ML ops. And you described it quite well earlier, like anything to do with the model. Yeah. Is it is it better that they don't cross over a huge amount? Like they talk to each other a lot, but they're really focused or does that make a problem where people become almost too focused on one thing so they might not understand the rest of it? Well, this is always the problem with specialization. So we want specialization. We want people to focus on an area and become good at that. And that's how they become efficient. However, it creates silos, right? Because now you have a team of three or four or five MLOps engineers Data scientists, data scientists no longer need to know about this stuff that goes on. They just care about their modeling. And then they're in two separate worlds. Right? You, I think you want those to build those teams, but you need to also bridge the gap a lot. My preferred model at the moment, which is what I want to drive forward here, is to team up. So for us, we have it's four data scientists, three MLOps people. And when a data scientist works on a project, say it's a, and I prefer, like this is my setup, I prefer with the for the, like the shape of model. So it's a six-week project. I don't like it. I think generally data science doesn't work in a two-week cycle. Often you need a bit more room, so thinking about expectation. I think longer term, like six-month projects is just like, so let's cut it down six weeks, but then I'll pair them up. One, and then ops, one data science as well. The idea is that six weeks is to just produce the model, produce an early stage model, and that's integrated so it can actually be tested. Maybe it has a front end, maybe it has a few other things, right? Um, so the two work together. One is working on the infrastructure part, and one is working on the um, modeling. But they're working together, like they, they're doing their meetings together, they're originating the ideas together, so that way you cross pollinate that's the, yeah. right the ideas, right? That the data scientists will be explaining to the analogs and the other they're working together to pair what he or she is doing, right? Obviously, because it is, and you know, that will rub off on the analogs engineer about what is actually what's going on with the modeling and the mathematics and statistics. And from the other side as well, the data scientists will start understanding what's going on with the infrastructure. I think that way for me works very well. Um, instead of you know, putting three data scientists in the room and just cooking up that models. Yeah. Of course, that because we're a slightly smaller thing, our projects are slightly smaller. If you were to maybe do things that did need nine months of research, probably it would be a slightly different thing. But then again, I think where we are in data science, there's not much in commercial data science that needs nine months of research, unless you're Google, but that's not actually commercial research, right? Yeah. That's the academic arm that's spending mm-hmm. nine months on a, on a whatever amazing thing they're, they're, they're putting out there. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's interesting. We've not really talked about this much on, on the show, but I'd mentioned um, there was actually at a Man Kamel event, I was speaking to one of the guys that was running on a team and he mentioned he really didn't like the kind of agile approach to software development being chucked at the data science team as well. Like it, it, it people, obviously agile, well, obviously, obviously it works. Maybe it doesn't work. I don't know, but it's very popular. Um, so he said a lot of his team was kind of, paired off into these two-week sprints with the software team, with the product team, and that's how they had to approach work. And he really didn't like it. And it seems like you've just mentioned that as well, and a couple others have mentioned it. So do you think, will that change kind of as we keep maturing through data science as well? Again, I think we went from one to the other. And we've done this as well. We tried to do the embedded you know, yeah, squad yeah. work. Um which can work if you have something if you have something there in there, like say you have somebody that's running and you need to do small improvements to it, maybe two weeks is fine because there's something to go from a week to a week, but, um, or just need to add some features to your more like your interface or whatever file. But the cadence isn't the same, like you can't you can't hack a model together and not them to test it, right? So everybody will do loads of experiments all the time. What are we doing next to these? Let's try and put this thing, let's try and change this, let's try and change that on the website and see what it does. But it just doesn't work because you, the cadence is so different. Like you spend a week thinking about things, then you build something, then you test it. It's all like speed is just different. Um, our problem is that we just removed ourselves a bit from that process. Okay, it doesn't really work. We can't really do much in two weeks. So. So we're not really contributing anything. Um, but then when you remove yourself, which is kind of, you, you lose that because you need to go back into the product at some point, right? If you build a product design, you can't just build these six weeks projects. And because the other side of the other is working agile, which is, this is like, you do all these little kind of random walks and you sort of expect to end up, you do always little experiments all the time, you're expecting to end up in a good place six yeah. months from now. Because you don't know where you're going to end up, the, the standard engineering side doesn't know where they will end up in three months. It's very difficult for the data scientists to work on a three months project because they may work on something for three months. They'll be finished with it. They'll come back and be like, what we feel And the other guys are like, yeah, 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 that, that made sense three months ago, but we're somewhere else now, right? Because the edge of the process meant that they moved in another direction. They've sort of, yeah. if two weeks spent, they've slowly moved away from, we thought they were going this way, that was the trajectory, and then slowly they moved this way. Like now they're over here and far away from what we thought they would be. And they don't care about what we did. That is the, the risk of that, um, which we encountered a couple of times as well. We sort of, for us, we're now trying another, I mean, we managed to get a few things out and I think it's worked well, but it's, uh, it is because it's early days, everyone, everyone's still finding their way working in a, in a, especially with agile. Um, yeah. So data science almost wants these archaic, long, one year roadmaps that engineering hates, right? Because, <laughs> like, you, you, you know, in the old days, you say, oh, this is what we're building this year, and here's the timer, here's the GAD chart. All right, get going. And everyone in engineering hates that, right? Because it's so restricted that you don't know, like, it's not what you need to do, but you're doing it just because it's a footprint, right? But we kind of want that in some way because you need to see the horizon. We need to understand roughly the direction to, before we can go and build some, do some research and spend three months building something. 
We had another question from Twitter from Martina Pugliese. I'm sorry if I said your name wrong, Martina, uh, who is a lead data scientist in Edinburgh. Um, she wanted to know a bit more about data viz uh, or data visualization, which actually might be quite useful given that you've taken over or, or now leads the kind of BI and analytics overall at a test. She was asking about the relationship between data viz and data science. So um, specifically kind of how to not only do good data science on the data you've got, but also how to display those results um, in a way that she describes as engaging and rigorous. So I imagine, and you'll know more than I will, Eric, but maybe aimed more at how to get the business on board, right? Because that's that's kind of the point of data viz, isn't it? Yes, for me, it's firstly, I think, well, data viz is is ancient, right? It's been around forever, 50s. (laughs) I remember I used to work in the newspaper in the 80s and, it was database, right? Drawn by hand, but it was database. Yeah. Um, I think we've sort of neglected it a bit in the last, I don't know how many years. I don't think it's particularly important on product side. So often when you build a product, so again, I'm making this distinction between data science product and data science BI. But data science product, often you're building something that the customer doesn't see. Time very complicated, but at the end it needs to be very simple, right? And they shouldn't understand that there's a lot of magic going on. On the other side, you kind of want to, you don't want to transfer too much information to the customer. Actually, you want to transfer very little. That's the idea of the product. On the other side, you want to transfer as much information as possible on the BI side, right? Because you want to give that information to the stakeholders, to the commercial leads or whatever, who are consuming this data, right? You don't want to simplify it because you're removing nuances that really matter to them. Like if we're talking about optimizing your sales pipeline, your funnel on the website, your uh, understanding the usage your customers have on your product. Like you want to convey as much information as possible to them. And then what they signs of they signs of stuff and do is right they'll put together a uh, here's ten tables of some numbers. I mean, here's the chi square tests, have a look. And that conveys nothing to most people because it's just the math numbers makes no sense, right? And that's where I think data is super important. This is all that is about conveying as much information but in the simplest way as possible, right? But I think we kind of neglected it. It's not something we ask for in the data scientist. It's not something we really care about when we hire people. And therefore people are not optimizing for it. People are not saying I should upscale this. I should understand it. I should it should be part of my tool set. Because it's not really a big requirement. Like, it's a nice to have. Oh, you can do some charts. That's nice. But you know that from hiring. Right? It's not something people say or ask you about in your interviews. So I think we've neglected that a lot. I think we should, especially when we talk about internal data science, we should start. I don't know how because I'm terrible at it, so I can't say, like, oh, you yes, should do this and that and this. I don't. Like, I just put some bar tests together and I'm like, look at the tables. But I think it's something that we're lacking. And if it's see that whatever we need with people where you need to put across a lot of information. So you know that you understand that they are like equipped to do their job well with all this information. Yeah. But you can also see that the way you're doing is terrible because they'll keep getting questions back saying, What does Kai Square mean? And you're like, ah, you know, like that. oh it's just this and uh, what is that? Or what is that? Why is this index here? Why do you do that? And, well, if I understood how to put that across as a, in a visual, it would be much easier, right? Yeah, it's definitely a, a skill. And maybe you're right as well. Maybe there's 
parts of data science where it's not as important. But I think, so we do a fair bit of recruitment now for kind of larger consultancies who are working on site at maybe a bank or somewhere like that. And you can see why, and this isn't the case right now, but you can see why they might really probe in an interview, like tell us a bit more about your kind of experience with data viz and like how you manage to convey stuff to, to customers. Cause that's obviously if you're a consultancy charging your consultants out at a thousand pounds a day and the client wants some nice looking visualization, then you should hopefully be able to do it. Um, so yeah, maybe it's certain parts of it are more important. Although you see like, the best example of really shit data visualization is this whole COVID pandemic. Like every single chart and graph and like thing that gets released is so hard to follow and often are completely wrong. Like in terms of how they've structured the graphs and stuff, like it doesn't even make sense. So it's definitely part of a wider problem and there's so much data, but how it's being presented isn't, isn't amazing. Yeah. And there is, I mean, there is tooling out there. We have a lot of, tooling in the data science world in particular libraries for doing visualization we just don't really you know, just don't use them very well I think in a lot of cases Do you think that's maybe where and I've talked about this ages ago on the podcast actually probably about the last time you were on is almost having like I can't think of a better job title and job titles are bad enough but like a kind of business data scientist within certain companies so like their job is that of like a traditional business analyst where they talk to the technical team and they and they get it. They probably can't do it, but they get it. And then their job is to kind of straddle data science and go into the kind of management meetings or the customer meetings and present things in a nice way. And maybe that's where they have to bring skills. Again, maybe not necessarily to build the visualizations, but to tell the data scientists what they need and how it should look. Yeah, yeah, I've experimenting with that, like thinking about it, some sort of PM. I mean, a lot of people nowadays have a product manager PM for the data science team, or data science. Yeah, team. it's just what is the skill set that person needs to have, and I think data should be a part of that. Like that is kind of that should kind of be that person. That person is the interface, right, between the the, the, the geeks on one side and and the normal world and they need to be able to translate right? that's there's that interface mission we've been giving a lot of teams i just i think it, i don't know i've seen it in a few places that were quite actually i don't know exactly how it works like how it should work yet. yeah <laughs> and what the skill set is you're looking for and the person you're looking for yeah, because um, we've worked with only a couple of companies now who've asked us to find them like data product managers. And what's hard about it is they're not 100% sure if they want them to be data engineer, data warehouse, data science, tech backgrounds, and they just so happen to have had a real interest in product. Or are they really, really experienced product managers who just happen to have worked on data projects? Like It's, it's hard because you're hoping for you're just hoping for them to kind of turn up rather than being able to go and like pursue them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, yeah. I, don't, I don't imagine that that is not an easy one to fill, but yeah, that's maybe where the data is to kind of not really answer Martina's question in terms of like, it's, it's hard is basically the answer. Um, and maybe it's calling out for a, a somebody to have a different role. 
I think it needs to be a part of the data science setup. Basically, that would be my my answer. But I don't know how. Yeah, maybe Ma- maybe Martina knows. Maybe she could tell us. Um, she uh, she's involved in Pi Data Edinburgh, so um, I'm sure she's seen at least some people talking about it. We'll go into the last topic of, uh, or pretty much the last topic of the day. So it's been over a year. I mean, you're kind of slowly getting some people back into the office, but it's been kind of over a year of remote working, um, and you've hired people and and the team has grown loads. How is it? How has it been, kind of, for you managing people remotely? Um, is the job of a data scientist one of those where it is feasible to do it long term, remote, or flexible? Yeah, I, th- I think it's easier definitely for data scientists because they're often they like to isolate themselves a bit, and work on a project, and it's a longer term thing. Like they can go away for a few days on their own, and work wise, they're fine. They don't need a lot of interfacing on a lot of stuff they do. They'll sort it out themselves. Um, and often, very like generalization here, but the, na- the, the character, the personality that you see in the field is often also that of a introvert and someone who is naturally not inclined to see other people if they can avoid it, right? So it makes it easier. Although I think after this long starting to start to wear and I think the best setup I think for a lot of because I know prior to this uh, days and previous this company this team previous teams etc I mean there's always been a lot of pushback from data scientists to work from home um, engineering as well but it's just in their nature I think in some way um, and they, they say why am I coming here when I'm just sitting on my own work on my own thing so I, but I think there's some, I think we now sort of, there'll be some flexible thing in between, right? Um, I'm not, I haven't quite figured out it. Also, for me personally, my team, people have left abroad permanently in permanent remote working arrangement in the company. So if you want to, within reason, it's, we have um, time zones of plus minus four hours, I think, from New York or London. And that means that we will never be together again in the same way we were before. So we have to figure something out. And and how do we do that? Uh, so I'm sort of starting to think about that. It's probably a few months away from things returning more or less to normal. And my my thinking at the moment is about having, you know, people can be flexible whenever they want. They can be at home, they can be in the office, depending on what they feel like. But there will be a sort of a, a day, data science day, um, Maybe every other Friday, something like that. Like you come in the morning, you have breakfast, tea breakfast, whatever. Do your rituals in the morning, your retros, your planning sessions, your longer term planning. Lunch, afternoon, you do a seminar. People offer a good seminar. People present some of the work. There's a whiteboarding session. I think a lot of these scientists miss some of the whiteboarding sessions where you just go crazy about, like with creativity with another person. Yeah. You know, we're just free flowing on a whiteboard, coming up with ideas and solutions. Um, and again, I think some of the rituals that you have, rituals and planning, is much more efficient in a in a person to person. Just I think there's a whole thing about um, having a person to person conversation. There's these subtle clues that you and you can, you can back an idea without having to say it just by your nodding. Yeah, uh, it's different, right? You don't need to then wait for your turn to say, "I also like that idea." Okay, like you can just 
in a room of eight people, right? It takes forever sometimes, but you go through everyone in there, hang out. Everyone needs to say their opinion. It can much easier, much more easily express it in a in a meeting, and you get through things quicker. Anyway, some short thing is, I think that's how I think about it going forward. But yeah, um, that I think that's the bit missing at the moment where people are running a bit on empty after so long working at all and not having had that creative flow with other people. Yeah, I think that's true for almost all jobs that we recruit for and, and the job that I do as well. Like I've I've actually quite enjoyed being at home and some of the flexibility that's like come with that. But there is that kind of being in the same room. And there's a lot of people who say remote working is the future and they say that the ideas coming in the room doesn't happen as much as you think it does. But like it's more just like being around people that are doing the same thing as you as well. Um, so you're not quite so like stuck. I think and I've been banging this drum since, I don't know, since like the second or third podcast I did in this time last year when remote working kind of was forced upon everyone that the companies that will do the best out of this are the ones that are just super flexible. Um, I honestly don't think 100% remote work would work for most companies. It will work for some. And I've don't think 100% office work will work for any company going forward if they really if they really want to have good people, especially in the kind of technical world that we're working in. If you want the very best data scientists, but you expect them to be in Canary Wharf at half eight till six every single day, and they live the other side of London, and then there's a company that will give them a few days remote, or they can come in at 10 a.m. and miss the miss the kind of rush hour, then they're going to win, obviously. And I think folk have appreciated being at home more and kind of seeing the kids and stuff. Um, I'm sure the opposite is also true. You'll, you'll know more than I do, but kind of getting, <laughs> getting away from people as well. But no, I think that the flexibility is is the key. You mentioned people that will be kind of kind of potentially living abroad in your team and, and getting them together maybe a couple of times a year or whatever, like in one place. Um, kind of as somebody that's managing people, is it a worry that you don't see people or do you think it, does it make your communication just like does it make it better almost I worry I worry for them more um, like my biggest worry is always how they are feeling I have maybe some people I have three or four reasons a week I see them one of them will be a one to one team the others will be there'll be five other people on this call yeah um and that's often not quite enough to forgive their energy, you know what I mean? Like, if you're in an office, I can see when someone's struggling, when someone's not having a great time, when someone's, you know, their work is getting down, there's something going on, and I can help, I can come over, you know, I'll be walking home, I'll come over and say, how are you, how are you doing today? I always, that's always my way, usually, of catching up with people, and I have that touch point throughout the day, but just seeing them, seeing their demeanor will tell me how they do it, like, yeah, um, and I made it. Uh, like you can sometimes miss that in a one-to-one, especially since I, you know, if I'm doing back-to-back meetings, I have half an hour with this person, and we need to talk through some work. <laughs> like, and then I'm on to next thing, right? And I, I find myself afterwards going, mm, I don't know how how that person is feeling. I don't. Yeah, and, and sometimes people put a bit of a brave face on on a one-to-one, or, or not even a brave face, but maybe they're they're okay. Yeah. Like they're, they're not bad. They're not yeah. good. And that is hard to tell kind of on a half an hour call. And like, yeah. 
like you said, you're talking about work as well. Um, that's the one thing that it's been really weird for us as well. Like our office is really is really sociable. When people are working, they're working. Um, but often there's breaks in the day where you can chat about like football or what we're going to do later on that night or whatever. And because you're working at home now, you you kind of have to like artificially carve that time out of your day and like make a point of calling somebody just out of the blue. Yeah. not to talk about work but that gets quite hard as well and like after a year of being at home like it is that part of it is weird yeah yeah it's really hard like yeah. as soon as you're booking a meeting it's something a bit formal and uh, you know it's yeah you feel like you have to just like yeah. you can just sit there and uh, yeah I actually did a I did a training session with the team yesterday and I said that no one was allowed to have a mute button on because I was just so bored of presenting with my screen being shared so I can't then see the faces and then you get nothing back because obviously they're on mute to not distract you and have all the noise in the background but I was just like no I want everyone sharing out answers like what we used to do in, in the office like just shout stuff at me and yeah. if I don't hear it, I'll just ask you again. But like, it was just so much nicer not to have a, a PowerPoint on the screen, no faces. And then like, it's kind of like being a really crap stand-up comedian where you say something waiting for a laugh and just nothing happens. Um, so yeah, I definitely enjoyed doing that again. Because that's one of the, that's what I was going to ask you actually, because it's probably easy in your role from a technical point of view, when you've got people you know are very, very good and you give them a problem or they come up with a solution and you know in two, three weeks' time you'll have something to talk about. But if you're hiring a junior data scientist or a junior ML ops person that need a lot of kind of hand-holding, is that more difficult? Or because you're doing a lot of stuff on screens, can you can you share and, and kind of coach people that way? Yeah, I haven't hired anyone junior since. Since this happened, there was one who had joined just before, so it's really so getting to know that person. I worry about that, like that relationship when you have the because a lot of juniors, first six, eight weeks, it's just coming home and sitting with them, showing yeah. the rooms. They don't know, especially first jump, you don't know, like you don't know, and you're so confused, you don't know what you're supposed to do. Who are you supposed to ask about what? You're a little bit shy. You're not just going to ping the boss and say, you know, can I ask you about this thing? Like, you're just going to try and sort it out on your own. And that's where, when you're in office, I'll see them. I'll see that person sitting there standing at the screen, not wanting to ask me the dumb question. So I can just move over and say, hey, how things? Oh, yeah, that thing. Oh, that's really difficult. Let me show you how it works. Right? Um, and I don't think that, that is, I worry about, especially since we they're all busy now, meeting with meetings. And that person will just sit at home, staring at the screen, being lost. Right? Yeah. Um, so I haven't drummed up the courage to hire anyone. It was <laughs> like their first job, day one of working since we went remote. Uh, yeah, it's definitely hard. Really, I mean, yeah. it's going to, it'll take a lot. I mean, maybe one, but I think if you said, if you suddenly said to your boss, like, I want to hire five junior data scientists, like that, that would be a huge amount of work. Um, and it's even just like my wife's team hired someone and the, the uh, laptop and stuff didn't work when it was delivered. And normally if you were in the office, you would just ask someone to come fix it. But it was like two days of not being able to work. Um, so yeah, so it's weird things like that, but like I said, I think the flexibility will be the, the most important thing. So it's uh, it's one that people will keep keep evolving. I think. 
Yeah, I think for me right now, at least it would be a junior would be someone who is located close to the office. So yeah. that myself, someone else, like for the first X weeks, we can make sure someone is always there with that person there and mentoring that person. Um, yeah. Like, Everyone else can be flexible, but that's like almost like a like a like a schedule when you're there. Like, so we make sure that that person is not left to their own. Like, and they, and they can meet people as well, like in different people yeah, on the team. So it's yeah, like not definitely. they don't they don't just see one person or they just keep phoning you on on Hangout or something like that. Like they get yeah. to kind of like see other people. And I suppose just lastly, that it kind of falls on a little bit. But given that you're now kind of on that, that director level, looking after the whole kind of analytics team, um, outside of talking to the data scientists, has the kind of like business communication, for lack of a really crap term, has that been okay for you guys kind of remotely? I know the company is really like, it's really well set up, it's well run. Um, is it just lots and lots of conversations and, and kind of over communication almost? Uh, yes, I think. Uh, I mean, this has evolved. Uh, a lot. So I think we're quite good at async and writing. I think that's very important to write down and over communicate that way so people can read in their own time. And not just sort of, I like to write something and then write it, look at it again and look at it again and look at it again and then share it like maybe to the end of the week. To the end of the week, my, my ideas will evolve and actually what I then share is pretty, pretty well thought up. But I think that is best medium that kind of you get a, a, a context, shared context, a lot of things you can do just through writing and commenting and you know, async where people don't feel like they have to either reply immediately or be in a meeting. I think yeah. in a lot in the beginning we but we do have like do have a lot more meetings. I feel like I'm probably for a lot of people, I'm much more busy than I was before. I would some days be back to back meetings from nine to like six when I pick up the kids, right? So I used to at least take some time for lunch. That's gone. <laughs> because you need to be, there's so many people you need to sync up with where you would be synced up with them just through standing. I used to stand around where the coffee machine was and I would, people would come by and say, hey, how are things where you guys work out, right? Or you could have those little like two minute. Everyone has shared a context more, also because you hear people in the office. I think we underestimate you hear people talk, so you actually yeah. understand what other people are doing. I know some people in the company have no idea what they're doing because I haven't seen them in a meeting for a year, and I haven't heard them. I haven't overheard their conversations, <laughs> so I have no idea. <laughs> I haven't chatted them. So then, when you have a meeting with them, it's like first time you meet someone. Is I spent 20 minutes getting to a shared context of you just because you talk different languages. So you like you say something with some words, the other person something, and after 20 minutes you realize you mean the same thing, and now you can start making have a, have a meeting around the decisions that you make, and all those things you can do async before, and like you should share those things, you can write it, you should comment on that, so at least you have a shared context when you have a meeting. But anyway, point is, I think you're not we're not always super good. I think we're good at that. We're not always super great at that. And that means our calendar is just put like <laughs> back to back for a lot of people hang out, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, which wouldn't need to be. Again, it's kind of that scene. I have one to ones with everyone every week. I probably wouldn't do that in the office because they would be like, why are we having this meeting again? Like, you sit next to me. 
But now I need to see, I feel like I need to see people that really need to see their face and try and at least give them an hour of my time to talk through because they don't get any of my time. I think it's also hard because like some of your team will be the same as ours and, and everyone else where they might live on their own or like in a shared flat or especially, I mean, some of your guys are in London, right? So, I mean, they could live in a tiny flat in London and have no kind of outside communication yeah. kind of during their work day. So it, it's important for them to, to see you, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that's difficult for, I guess, for me in particular to relate to because with all this, and that's something I thought about as well a lot, because with all this, my life has become incredibly active. Like, it's meeting all day, the kids have been home loads of days, which is like, just outrageous <laughs> and stressful, right? They're just there, breaking the printer next to me while I'm trying to have a meeting with someone. Like, my days have been up there at like the highest level of stress, like from in the day. But for other people, that's not, and so the experience has been the opposite, right? It's been loneliness. It's been nothing happens today really yeah <laughs> and i think that is just as bad if not worse than my experience of it so you need to try and understand that and, and give people some whatever you can right? yeah just like, kind of, just as, as much communication as possible I mean, we've tried to do loads of different like after work stuff and like trying to stay away from the let's do the pub quiz and like all that stuff from last year which um, was okay and um, but yeah it's just trying to keep people involved but also being wary that a lot of folk are just bored of looking at screens all day <laughs> and being on yeah. video calls which is it's, it's hard to navigate that all right nice one well we'll leave all the data science stuff there so if anyone's wanting to listen to data science stuff that's it we're probably going to talk about football for a couple of minutes um <laughs> but <laughs> thanks for coming back on the show um and if you come back on again we'll need to do like a, a soccer am style like hat trick present something um podcast related um oh, but uh, since we've got you and you're an Arsenal fan, what are your thoughts on the on the Super League? Terrible idea. Not from... I don't really care about all the... I care about... We would basically be the shittiest team ever in this, let's be honest. <laughs> no, Tottenham are there too, don't worry. Oh, I, I think they have a better team, let's be honest again. So it would be like, the goal for next season for Arteta would be like, let's try and win two games this season. That would be it in the Super League, right? <laughs> There's not, there wouldn't be any other ambition than that. Let's try with a game. Let's just try. It would be like in the US, they say, oh, this is all inspired by like, the US. But if you look at the NFL, there's these teams, the NBA, that just suck every year. And that would be basically us. Every year, we, just, we know we, we would lose entirely. And that was it. I just don't understand how Arsenal and Tottenham can be in a league where it's all the best teams in the world. And actually, given I'm a Man United fan, I'll chuck them in as well. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. And uh, although, to give it a slightly different spin, and I've said this to a few people this week, I don't understand the hatred for the idea based on it being about money, because surely we're way past that. Like, Sky Sports and BT are throwing their toys out the pram when all they care about is money, which is what I don't get. Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the point of Champions League. No? I mean, it's not... Yeah, Champions League's not for competition, right? Because yes. England get four teams, no matter how badly they do the year before. Yes, it's not altruistic or anything. It's just purely, yeah, I don't... Uh, it's, some, yeah. it's somebody else's greed, which is annoying the other greedy people. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get like, it didn't quite get some people, but it definitely gets like UEFA, because that's like how they make their money. 
course. Yeah, because and UEFA are such a stand-up organization as well, and same as FIFA. Like, they're all great. They're all great people. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a weird one. Um, the good news is it doesn't affect me because, I mean, my team keep getting <laughs> relegated from the Scottish Premiership and we're not going to get invited. So it'll be fun. maybe we'll win the Champions League soon because there'll be nobody left. Yeah, but I, I, I do think it will happen, though. Maybe. Unless you think it'll actually it'll go ahead in some way? I think unless they do something with the Champions League, like change that in a way that everyone agrees. Just think there's too much money on that side of those clubs. And it's weird though because they said um, they were going to stop them playing international football, but I don't understand what that's got to do with anything. I, I don't understand either. If they like, okay, I, I don't understand the legality of it. But if you said this is a private tournament, there's lots of private tournaments. It's like every summer we played. Yeah, and you then, play the like Emirates yeah. Cup and stuff. That's a private tournament. Yeah, and we just play this, and they say, okay, you have to play the Champions League. Fine, and you send your youth team to the Champions League if you want to. Like there used to be a thing called a Toto. You remember the Toto tournament? Yeah, the and Inner Toto Cup, yeah. Yeah, and my home team used to beat Tottenham because Tottenham sent a team of 16, 70-year-olds. Right? There was not a single Boston squad member in the team because they don't care about a dumb summer yeah. tournament, right? but they had to participate because they're part of UEFA. Yeah. You could just do that with Champions League and play the real, they play the Super League and send your youth team to Champions League. And then you're not breaking any rules. They can stop, yeah. Yeah, so anyway. I just hope they don't ban international players because Tierney and Robertson are our two best players. So it would be good to not have them banned from the Euros if Tierney makes it. Um, but no, it'll be an interesting couple of weeks and we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, it seems to have caused more outrage than anything I remember in football ever. Yeah. yeah. Apart from maybe VAR, but I don't know. That's maybe not. There's just those two. All right, well, well, thanks so much for coming back on. Hopefully we can catch up soon in person. You never know. Oh, that'd be nice. I'm on Camel in yeah. 2021. It seems, it seems like it might go ahead. So, yeah, no, we'll, we'll... But, yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ben.